welcome back to the Lawali Life podcast. I'm your host, Alice Law, and this podcast is based purely around stress and loss with a mixture of incredible conversations with amazing leaders in their fields, sharing their stories on the greatest stresses and losses they've had to overcome, how they came back from them, with all their tips and tricks to get you back through yours. This podcast focuses purely on stress and loss because they are fates we all share to go through stress and to experience loss. So I wanted to dissect them further and get you the information you need to make sure that you can always come through yours. My guest today is the wonderful Pete Trainer. Pete is an entrepreneur, a best-selling author, a TEDx speaker, an AI-focused designer, a suicide prevention campaigner, and one of the UK's leading business strategists. And he is currently the CEO of Valor Healthcare, which is an incredible company, which is a hybrid between traditional medicine and functional medicine with both doctors helping them find solutions together. I really found this conversation so interesting talking about the functional side of medicine because I think it's something that's really overlooked in the UK. It's big in places like California and America, which is actually where this company was founded. And it's something that I think really we need to open our eyes to, you know, looking at the root cause of our health problems as opposed to just putting a bandage on top of whatever to just find a quick fix. So I love talking to him about everything they're doing there and all the things, you know, aspects of AI and how it can help our mental health and his own story. I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much for agreeing to do it. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you about all of this for people to understand first of all talking about okay you're a strategist but an applied ai designer and you understand technology and all these kind of things also a suicide prevention campaigner and obviously ceo of valor healthcare which i'm gonna ask you to explain a bit later so there's just many strings to your bow <laughs> and it's so exciting to be able to talk to you about all these different things mental health ai and first of all i would just love to know talking about your active suicide prevention campaigning starting there how did that begin was that a personal reason or how did you get into that that's a big question to start on i think everybody has a point at some point in their life where either something happens to them or someone they know or someone in their, their ring of influence that takes them close to that place i had a really dark patch in my kind of early 20s and it was really dark. And it was, you know, I had a real problem trying to understand where I was, what I was doing, young, impetuous, expecting the world to give me more than it was giving me, like an early crisis, I guess. And I did come very close to that, that dark place. And it was a bit of a wake-up call for me. I was working incredibly long hours. I was partying very hard, emotionally all over the place with life. And so I did come close to, to kind of, you know, finding myself in that place. I was actually very fortunate to have a support system around me and people around me who picked me up when I was that down mm-hmm. and, you know, really kind of like dragged me through the trenches. But that moment in my life really stuck with me. And it was a moment where I said, do you know what? I can do way more with the technological talent that I've been given than just continuously working for other people to create stuff that nobody wants? What if I could help to contribute to stop people getting to that place What it, that I'd just been through? And that was really the turning point for me. 
but I feel really blessed and really lucky to have had people that kind of dragged me through it because then the minute you start having this conversation and you start relating to other people, you start realizing that actually statistically there are a lot of people that didn't get to the other side of that place. And so the problem that I was then trying to solve becomes even more serious because you start to realize that actually there are numbers out there that are more than tragic. And so that kind of, that lit the fire under me to try and do better things and try and make sure that at least everything I was doing in the technology and and design and digital landscape had some kind of purpose that was moving in a direction that might save one life at some point. I mean, that's amazing. I think, would you say, because obviously there is such a, there's a stigma of mental health anyway, that's starting to now be broken in the, you know, in the last years, but it still has so far to go. And particularly with men's mental health, did you feel that as a man, it was harder to be able to say, I've got a problem with this? Absolutely. I have a genuine problem with the word stigma. It really bothers me as a word because it's a derivative of a Greek word for tattoo which means, you know, the implication is it's, it's something that's irremovable. Like you can't remove this thing. And I'm like, well, that, that in itself is part of the problem. If we keep using words like stigma, it implies in some way, shape or form ingrained in this conversation that people cannot remove the barriers in front of them or remove, you know, the issues to having these conversations. And I think men particularly have struggled with this over the years. The more that I've been into this topic and the more, you know, I've met people and I've explored it and I've looked at the data and I've worked with amazing, incredible charities like Calm, the campaign against living miserably, who are campaigning tirelessly to try and, you know, reduce the number of male suicides in the country, the more you realize that, you know, actually there's a there's a massive problem with toxic masculinity. There's a massive problem with the way that my generation especially were raised by amazing parents to shut up and not complain systemically we're trying to breed out quite a lot of the sort of ingrained biases and and the you know the mistakes of the past it's a big job but men especially I think have for far too long kind of lived under this umbrella of man up and get on with it and the language and everything that surrounds that is, is killing people in large numbers we've got to change the narrative completely and it not be something that people can't talk about that we have yeah. to be able to talk about how we're feeling I totally agree with that. I think if I had got, if I had a pound for every time, you know, a client of mine, particularly a male client had said, I used to think that, you know, men or people who were like this were weak and now I understand it. But just because, not, they, not that they actually, you know, came up with that theory themselves. That's just the way that society has always portrayed this. So it's just such a sad thing because the reality is, is that everyone struggles in their own ways at yeah. some point in their life. One of the statistics that I debunk every time somebody says it, even if I'm at a conference or I'm listening to something and somebody says it, is this idea that one in four of us struggle with a mental health complication. It's like, no, four in four of us. Every single person has mental health. And so this idea that, you know, that person over there is going to be the issue at some point or it's going to have a problem at some point, like, no, 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 this is all of us. And so we've got to just all embrace the fact that we're beautiful, fallible lumps of bone and flesh that actually all hit a problem at some point and if we all help each other through it then that's great that's what we should be doing I totally agree it's that sense of I think it's the sense of community that people need to have in terms of looking after our mental wellness and our emotions that we're not meant to be a species that is doing everything solo which is where the kind of collective almost like what's the word it's that kind of need to think, oh, I need to sort this out on my own when actually you really shouldn't try to sort it out on your own. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree 100%. The 
the other thing that you know made me feel terrible about myself is you know we should not ignore that in the last 20 years that the internet technology social media all of these things have contributed to not only raising the awareness of poor well-being and mental health but also exacerbated some of the issues but what's weird is because you just mentioned about community we're all in this weird global community and yet somehow it's divided us even further and so the more we immerse ourselves in this kind of ones and zeros data driven community the less we know each other it's a weird time the last 20 years have been very strange indeed yeah totally so yeah talking about like okay like technological community that we're all sort of in how do you say when you look at artificial intelligence obviously it's something you're very well versed in how can that sort of help us with psychological effects and you know things on their audiences or is it only going to damage us or do you think it can also be used for good my career is always you know for the best part of sort of 20 plus years now is pivoted around data and data-driven stuff. So obviously when I moved away from quite cynical data-driven stuff into data-driven stuff that had a bit more meaning, I realized that there was something in all of that stuff, that data that we're generating that could be used. But then we hit this problem of the ethics of how you do it. And so I'm very vocal now that we should not codify care or counseling or in some way try and use AI to create replacements for professional people. Because again, that's almost the problem. The fact that we have to code, or some people feel like we have to codify counseling and care, like that's not fixing the problem. That's just highlighting the problem even further. The way that I've always, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's something really like ironic about this idea of digitizing care. It's like, just make care better or mm. make care more accessible. Or the way that I've always approached this is use AI and data as an interface to help people get help before they know they need it or get help quicker or find a better route to the right kind of care. It's like giving professionals more intelligence to be better professionals rather than taking the professionals away from the situation completely. Yeah, I love that. I'm terrified of the situation where, you know, there's a generation coming through that go like, oh, I can speak to a bot about my problems. Don't do that. That, I mean, that's a terrible idea. Would you, I mean, Alice, would you would you talk to a chatbot about, you know, your issues? And by the way, for the record, just before Alice, you know, answers me on this one, I've been in the press. I've tried it. Like I've built machines that answered questions. So I know they don't work. I would totally you talk to wouldn't. a machine about your problems? No, I really wouldn't because I, I really think we all thrive off human actual connection. And that's partly energy as much as it is a conversation. So you can't get that energy out of a technology. Would you trust the machine to guide you to an answer, be that, you know, a human that can help you solve a problem or, you know, another piece of content or something? Yeah, to a resource, I would trust a machine, say, to take me to somewhere that I might not know of or I might not think I need or that person, like you say, that could help me for sure. But I wouldn't want them to be the helper, if that makes sense. Exactly. It's like sat-nav sat for life or sat-nav for mental health is a pretty good way of thinking about AI and data. And if you go beyond sat-nav for mental health, you end up in this place which is literally codifying well-being and care that's not humanity. Yeah. So do you think, like you say, that's the way it helps us is to show us how we can help ourselves or when we might need to. That's its kind of strength. 
Definitely. I had a I had a revelation moment 15 years ago now when the first proper smartphones were coming out, the iPhones, and I was hacking them apart, looking at, you know, what's underneath all this. And you go like, oh my goodness me, look at all this psychometric data that we generate in this strange addiction that we have to these machines. Like, you know, we're tapping away and we're doing so much stuff. And there's this layer underneath our behavior that's being held on these phones. That in itself is a really good way of helping people analyze and point them to better things, to sources, to pieces of information, to, you know, just as a way of helping people, it's really useful. So the fact that that resource is there, why shouldn't we tap into it and use it? I think we just have to work out, you know, the boundaries of how we use that wisely and the ethics of how we do that stuff. So that's kind of where I come at it now is, is technology is here to stay. We're not, it's not going to disappear. We might as well find a way of finding the good stuff in there. So mining the gold out of, out of all this muck uh, and trying to use it to navigate people to, towards other people. Helping people find other people is a cracking way. I mean, the world is a lot smaller now than it used to be. Helping people find like-minded other people that can enrich them and, and you know, energize them and help them. Brilliant. That's amazing. And why not use the data that we're all generating to help facilitate that? I think that's, that's such a cool idea. And it's, it's definitely necessary, like you say. I've heard you talk about before, okay, like designing stupidity through apps. <laughs> Could you explain like what you mean by that in terms of are our sort of phones making us more stupid? Is this the reality we're all faced with? And how do we sort of combat that if that's the case? If we're all getting more and more stupid every day from being on our phone. <laughs> I think I think there's a I think there's a reliance on frictionless engagement that phones especially facilitate that, you know, is very detrimental to kind of nonlinear problem solving. You know, we did a lot of research. I did a lot of research over the years in, in this idea of kind of hippocampal atrophy based on so that the way that the brain is affected by kind of linear and nonlinear problem solving and how that kind of really has an effect on certain parts of the brain when you're continuously doing linear tasks so swiping left and right, up and down. You're having everything spoon-fed fed to you. You're not thinking necessarily for yourself. You're not critically solving problems. That actually does have a very detrimental effect, you know, on the brain and therefore, you know, people's well-being. There is an effect. I think scientists are, are, are starting to prove this now every day that, you know, there is an effect on the brain from all of the behaviors that we display, the amount of time we spent glued to these bits of glass, getting answers really, really quickly unquestionably. However, I do think there is a way of designing stuff that could have and will have the opposite effect. So if we can design things that are very linear and very frictionless and, and you know, get people to pay for stuff quickly, why couldn't we bake in more thought-provoking, problem-solving actions into the things that we design and spew out into the world deliberately, almost go against the grain of, of simplification and, and make things harder for people so that they are continuously problem solving, put some barriers in their way so they have to work out to get around them. I think that's going to be really good for people. I think it can only be more helpful. They just won't like it. Because <laughs> there's no instant gratification, is there? If you say like, you know, are you sure you want to spend that money? What else could you spend that money on? So my I way of thinking is not, it's not a good way of thinking for a lot of people, I have to say. I think it's so needed though, because it is... Like you say, we're just, we are at a time in society and culture where everything is at the click of a button, particularly if you live in a city. Like I'm in London, I could get delivery to my door in 15 minutes now. And, you know, 
not in lockdown, but a massage if I wanted, you know, all these different yeah. things just so quick. And I think, like you say, it's almost made people forget. Well, I think it's almost made us not realize and not remember how appreciative we have to be for these ridiculous things. And when things are slower than they should be, we're like, oh my God, it's taking so long. And it's like, that literally is the quickest thing ever. That's it. it. That's it. I heard uh, years ago now, I heard someone complaining on an aeroplane about the Wi-Fi being slow. And I, well, hang on a minute. Can you not just appreciate the fact you're flying? You know, before you start complaining about how slow the Wi-Fi was to download your movies. It's like how quickly we forget something, you know, that... Yeah, it, yeah it, it, I don't know how quick does. that was to actually happen. That's only happened in the last... What, the Wi-Fi on planes has only been the last 10 years, hasn't it? I, mean, I know. And I also... I'll tell you what, Alice, the other thing that really kind of winds me up a little bit, and I'm not going to rant, is as we are ordering our pizzas that arrive in 15 minutes and not appreciating how quick that was and how brilliant that was, like, automagically... There are people in the world that still don't have access to, you know, clean and running water and sanitized toilets. And, you, you know, we do take it for granted because we're absorbed in this kind of technological construct and our well-being is, you know, not just eroded by it, but we take it for granted. There are people who still struggle with even the basic things. We are spoiled. And I think technology is spoiling us in ways that potentially we don't realize. Mm. Uh, it, it makes me a bit sad. I love that word you used, automagically. I think that's such a good reframe of automatically. It's it's so true. It is automatically. <laughs> it's like, but the kid, my kids are even worse. Like they, <laughs> they terrify me because they're they're used to automagic from birth. I grew into it. I came into this. I'm a kind of digital immigrant into the situation. They're natives. They don't know anything different. So clicking left and right is is kind of a second nature to them. I had to learn how to behave like that. Yeah, so actually that's such an interesting point. I'd love to ask you about that. So you've seen that as having children who are literally born into, like you say, this completely technological era. How have you seen that sort of affect them from, say, social media? You know, are they at the age where they have social media yet? Do you, are you worried about the sort of comparison game that really has caused such a problem on social media for people's mental health? It must be quite a worrying thing as a parent. Yeah, very worrying. And I think as a parent who so absorbed in knowing the issues knowing the positives but also knowing the negatives it does scare me a little bit we have to arm them with with different skills these days we're probably going to have the data conversation with them before the birds and the bees <laughs> which you is know, so but, funny <laughs> like, it is i mean but it's kind of we have to say there is this thing it's not going away unfortunately there are pluses and there are minuses to this it's a tricky one because you can't ignore it. It's not going to go away. Of course, they're going to go online and do everything. We've been in lockdown for a year and they're doing all their schooling over screens. And thank goodness for that, because otherwise mm. they wouldn't be doing anything. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously a concern that we're making sure that they and this new generation, I guess, have the right balance of screen versus skill, you know, and love versus kind of lossless quality on their streaming downloads it's like come on like remember that this is like magic so don't take it for granted yeah it is like you say it's such a hard thing to navigate I think for anyone who's going to have children in the future or has children now because you can't stop them from using it because they'll be behind in technology and then you know or then you don't want to over subject them to it because like you say for all those reasons you just mentioned so it is such a balancing act I totally agree even in this city that we're both living in right now, the difference between school over there 
technology and school over there technology is almost worlds apart. And so there's even this kind of tech deficit between communities in London and the UK. So again, we just have to make sure that the inequality of some of this stuff doesn't affect, you know, doesn't super boost some children to go further and, and keep some back or social media doesn't kind of absorb more vulnerable people in whilst like my kids hopefully are more armed to deal with it because we're more conscious of it and we've kind of tried to train them how to use it properly or at least appreciate what it is and what it isn't. So again, this kind of tech inequality thing is going to make a massive difference to people's long-term life and well-being without a shadow of a doubt. Something has to change to make sure that that doesn't have catastrophic consequences in the future. So when you say that, I was thinking about the um, the social dilemma. I don't know if you've watched yeah. watched it. <laughs> And for those of you listening who haven't watched Social Dilemma, it's a Netflix documentary that looks into essentially, well, social media, mainly sort of Instagram and how humans are essentially being addicted to it because it's literally designed that way. How do you think we could, for example, use, is there a way we could use AI that could help us to unaddict us from social media whilst using it safely? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if AI is, is necessarily the solution, but to even just rule-based, even just telling people how much time they're spending and the behaviors and the patterns that emerge from some of that behavior and just surfacing it back to them, sort of making the invisible visible can be a good nudge. It can be a good first start. Again, I think the minute we start to rely on machines that learn about us, inevitably there will be somebody that will exploit that versus somebody that uses that for good. I'm sort of one of these people that's reticent about putting an AI on everything because sometimes that's you know, equally the problem. But definitely, I think we have a we have an obligation, perhaps, to just teach people about what they're doing, why they're doing it, how they're doing it, um, so that it can start to make a bit more of an informed decision. We may very well start to see people, the next generations, rebelling against some of this and actually going, do you know what that social media thing that you did, Dad? How rubbish was that? You did what? <laughs> and so then we might find that in the next couple of years, it all comes a bit, you know, social media becomes a bit retro, which would be a nice thing, wouldn't it? But um, <laughs> The one thing that is a given is, is that companies are collecting a, a massive ton of data on us. And The Social Dilemma was obviously really documentary for me about ethical use of, of data and how you use that to manipulate people and you can do good or bad with that. The other thing I would add, just in terms of The Social Dilemma, because it was, it was good, but it was Netflix, wasn't it? So it was kind of, <laughs> sort of slightly gratuitous. What I got from it, though, is that all of these platforms that consume our lives at the moment were designed and built largely by people who are not affected by the issues that they have caused. So, mm-hmm. you know, these are, you know, white middle-class dudes who, you know, will never be the victims of racism, sexism, ageism, all the isms. They haven't designed them as safe spaces because they've never been affected by those things. So that was kind of apparent in my head um, mm-hmm. when I was watching that documentary about that's possibly the issue that they've just not been designed as safe spaces because they weren't designed by people who understand the complications of being on the other end of that. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. I think it's it's so true. It's about people actually becoming conscious of who's even designed what they're using and why they might have designed it in the first place. Having that sort of mindfulness side to our like, well, technological choices as much as our consumer choices, that's such an interesting point. Yeah, I think there's empathy built into everything. So, you know, one of our energies that we put into the world is kind of 
positive and negative energy. I really do believe that in everything we code and everything we type and every email we send, you know, words and, you know, empathy of the way that things are designed and who they're for can be very powerful. And if you design things with empathy for the audience, uh, that can be very, very powerful. I think a lot of the systems that we, we tend to lean on every single day are largely built with apathy of the issues that they will eventually have caused. That's something I think we can be a bit more conscious of in the, in the techno- technology and design world. Yeah, I love that. So speaking of positive energy, I'd love to talk about Valor Health. So you know, it's yeah. what you do now and just people understanding that because I think it's such an incredible company. I'll let you explain properly, but because it's, well, for me in the UK, I just don't think this is a thing and it's so, so needed. And I just love, love it. So please, will you first explain to people what Valor Health is? And I'd love to talk about functional medicine as well. So <laughs> yeah, well, that's, you know, that's really kind of you. Uh, I like feedback on the business. Valor was founded by a couple of exceptional doctors a good few years ago now. They built a platform, the kind of platform that, that I think people are starting to get quite used to, especially in lockdown, where you can kind of go on and you can book an appointment for, with, a, with a, a GP. You can talk about your condition and then it's a regulated service. So the, the doctors were regulated to be able to do meds, you know, give medication if that's what's required and really consult with people. However, they, they founded it and they brought me in uh, at the end of 2019, actually. They approached me and, and said, you know, this is our business. This is what we're trying to achieve. And I said, your ethics and everything gel almost completely with mine. This was almost too good to be true that we could take everything that I've come from and, and this idea of kind of tech for good and data done in a much more positive way, salutinogenics. So this idea that, you know, actually we should be looking for the causes of mental and physical ill health it completely gelled with the way that they were practicing medicine. So we combined something that they'd been doing with something that I wanted to do to create, you know, what is now the version of Valor that's been consumed over the last 18 months or so. The whole concept behind Valor is, you know, you can book appointments with a team of clinicians, a blended team of clinicians online who will use your conversations and your data with them to really try and help you root out the causes of illness and mental ill health and try and keep you well rather than just treat you when you're sick. And I think for too long in the world, uh, over the last kind of 20, 30, 40 years, especially in the West, we've really been focused on medicating people when they're sick rather than really going right down to the, the kind of the DNA, literally the DNA of people to say, these are the things that you could probably be changing in your life and lifestyle and well-being that would help you be naturally healthier or, or feel better or stop you getting sick. So this, again, this concept of help before you know you need it. Don't get sick. Keep yourself well. So we've, that's what we've been doing with Valor for the last, um, certainly since I joined in the last 18 months, you know, we've been really focusing quite heavily on helping our community stay well online. It's been fascinating. We're now starting to look at types of data, which, uh, which I can talk about. It, it's not controversial, but it, you know, we're crossing into very complicated data sources now. So we're looking at epigenetics. So we are starting to look with our doctors at your DNA, if people give us a sample and, and agree to it, and then surfacing all the things in your epigenetics that can be modified, the data in your genetics that looks at you know, all the things that you can modify, your diet, you know, supplements, looking at your life much more functionally 
So looking at, you know, the genome in a much more functional way and saying, right, these are things that you can be doing. These are things that you should do less of that your body would react positively to. So I've gone from phone data to DNA data in, <laughs> in 10 years, which has blown my mind, but I still approach everything in exactly the same way, which is that in the core of that data, whatever that source is, is an answer to help people stay better, weller, and more supported. I think that's amazing, isn't it? So that, that's the whole really ethos, isn't it, behind functional medicine and functional nutrition to look at either the root cause of where something might be happening and then had show you how your body can be healed instead of you know constantly treating the same problem and not knowing where it's coming from exactly i mean we've got we've got labs that look at pathologies so again for me to come into this with this team of incredible doctors and realize that actually the minute you start to combine functional thinking pathology data easy to use technology that doesn't get in the way of of people accessing human beings it just makes it easier to get to a human being like this is the combination of things that society needs right now i'd like to think that we're doing it ethically and with a, with a really good focus on, on all the all the good reasons to do it so it's exciting it's very exciting so say obviously i completely agree with you i totally think we need a prevent rather than cure you know mindset around both health and mental health do you think the whole way it's been set up now is literally through lack of education from people not even understanding that certain foods are going to help them with certain things or you know I think so it's just it, uh so 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 shocking that we actually have all this information at our fingertips but not enough people know about it or how to use it I think we have developed over the last in the world over the last few decades some really quite unhealthy consumerism led choices diet, exercise, thinking of our, our bodies in a way, these are precious items, you know? You only get one of these, unless you're <laughs> lucky enough to get, you know, uh, a transplant of some kind. But, you know, like, joke aside, this is it. We've got to, we've got to treat these um, with some respect. And I think we may have lost a little bit of that respect. So I think it's really important that we start to help people understand that they are what they do and that they can live a healthy lifestyle without losing all the fun like you don't need to lose all the fun parts but certainly i think the abuse of our health is contributing to a lot of the problems that we're seeing in the world right now and so helping people to just to understand that i think is really important through no fault of anybody's like i would never point at anybody and go you're unhealthy you deserve <laughs> everything you get i'm saying actually everybody has the ability to make changes and they can be tiny little changes, lots of tiny little changes. And if we can use your data and surface lots of tiny little things that you can do, it's not complicated and it's quite approachable, then that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, so thinking about those tiny little changes, because obviously it's totally different for everyone. So, but like, what's an example of a really small change that people have seen that makes a difference for something? I mean, not anything specific, because obviously everyone's different, but. Yeah, I'm going to be the case study. So let's take me as an example. So so that I'm not breaking anyone else's patient confidence. <laughs> so Pete Trainer, uh, I did one of our first epigenetic tests when we were trialing this last year. And my DNA came back, my DNA sample came back, and a number of things were, were surfaced. So I had deficiencies in selenium, which is, you know, quite common, actually. It's, it's in nuts and things like that. So I kind of introduced that into my diet. I was diagnosed in one test. This test is gluten intolerant. So, okay, right, okay, well, you know, that's pretty common now because it's in quite a lot of stuff, but I can make some adjustments there. It told me that my joints were genetically predisposed to, you know, 
ache with certain types of exercise. Like it would literally go down to that kind of worry, uh, that that kind of you know data. So I changed my exercise regime slightly, little tiny choice choices and changes. It was telling me how my body reacts to caffeine. And so, you know, but instead of going, don't drink coffee, it was the recommendations that our service and system was, was giving me were have it at this time in the morning, stop after two, supplement something else, blah, blah, blah. And through about 50 or 60 tiny little lifestyle tweaks and changes, I've lost almost a stone. Wow. Like literally. So these kind of small functional things, and that's before I've even, you know, gone down the route of the pathologies and things like that, that, that I started getting addicted to as well and just kind of going, I want to know everything. Just those tiny changes just from the epigenetics uh, work, you know, almost a stone and a half. But that was, you know, that was changing lots of tiny little things and changing the way that I exercise and changing some parts of my diet. So, and I think what's really important about that is it, it wasn't complicated. And so we have to make well-being and health not just, you know, an imperative to everybody, but really approachable and really easy and really simple and lots of tiny little things and really empowering as well. I love that. God, I mean, a stone, that's crazy, isn't it? If you think about it, just from little tweaks. Since October. So yeah, so that's like, I mean, that's so quick as well. Wow. It's like, you're thinking like so, a stone over a year, no. <laughs> but, the, but the changes that it made, so some of the changes that it made, and again, you know, the idea that things are, it gave me a little bump of energy every day, a little extra bump of energy every day, so I could do a little bit more exercise and it not grind me quite as much. It gave me a little boost of energy to get up a little bit earlier to you know, reclaim some of those minutes. Our test and our service will help people to really identify you know, the anxieties and the mental health issues that are genetic and social so that you, know, you can make some little changes and tweaks around some of that stuff as well. I'm a worrier, not a warrior. Like, that's just who I am. But I think to be able to make some of those tiny changes, they all add to positive energy. They all add to you know, positive change. And the more you can accomplish with those things, I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy at some point. It's definitely something that um, I think Valor, something we're doing with Valor that's, that's very, very exciting and I hope very approachable to as many people as possible. Just before I ask you how, how we can do this, because I really want to do mine, like it's so interesting. Would you be able to just define for people what the difference between you know, straightforward genetics and epigenetics is for people that don't know? Yeah, for sure. And um, listen... I'm not the expert in this. So, you know, I feel like a fraud even talking about the complexities, the medical stuff. We've got an incredible team behind all of this. I feel really blessed to be surrounded by these amazing people. Your genetics, your DNA is basically fixed. So it's the stuff that you're, you can't change. It is who you are. It's what makes you up. It's a fingerprint. That's where you might say traditional DNA testing and traditional healthcare would generally start to say to people, you know, you get, you've heard about these tests before. They kind of go like, okay, there's a high percentage chance that you're going to get Alzheimer's, cancer, you know, Parkinson's, like these kind of things. What, and contribute more anxiety to people's life by telling them that. Like epigenetics on the flip of that is very focused and, and looking at all the SNPs, all the parts of the DNA that you can positively modify. So it's the parts of your genome, it's the parts of your, your genetics, it's the parts of your health that can be changed. So it's telling people, focus on the things that you can control. Focus on these little things and we will surface those things for you with the partner lab, with the, the app, you know, with these, the, the doctors that we've got. We'll tell you all the things that you can control, not 
parts of your DNA that you can. And that's the big difference between DNA and epigenetics. We're interested in the genetic part of you that is positive and modifiable. I love that. And I totally relate to that because what you were saying, I actually avoided myself. I have a huge predisposition to <laughs> cancer in my family. And, you know, I lost my sister, sadly, to cancer and my dad had cancer and his twin had cancer. And so I have been told, oh, maybe you should do the DNA test to find out if you're... And I just was like, I really don't want to, to be quite honest, for the exact reason that you said. Why do I want to be told by someone, this is that? And then, you know, and I'll be like, okay, great, now I've got anxiety. But epigenetics, I'm so interested in and what I can do to boost my health, even towards that side of things. I think it's so incredible. And I think just coming back to this idea, this thing that you are so amazing at, you know, talking about and, and getting out there with your conversations with people and stuff is this idea of positive energy and positivity and positive energy. It is palpable. It is a thing. If you can tell people all the good stuff, you can tell them all the stuff that they can control, all the stuff that they do have at their disposal to change. That's nothing but brilliant. Um, and it, it's more important to focus on that stuff. I mean, part of the concept behind, you know, salutinogenics and the thing that's always fascinated me about treating cause and condition is stress and anxiety not only cause illness, but stop people combating ill health. If you're stressed and anxious about something that may or may not happen, that's probably going to make you sicker in the long run mm. than focusing on the things that you can control. So we should at least help people to focus on what's good about life and health and well-being and, and our careers and technology and all that kind of stuff. Just keep things positive and that positive energy, I think, you know, will, will, will affect the people around you. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's like you say, it's more needed now more than ever. I think people <laughs> are, it's just, you know, it even watching the news right now, it's just, there's no point because yeah. it's just going to make you down. It says the same thing over and over again. I say this to like any clients at the moment. I'm like, if you're not feeling positive, please stop watching the news because it's almost like a programming in your mind without you realizing subconsciously because it's feeding you the same thing over and over and over again. And there's nothing you can personally do about it in this moment. So you'd be better to go and listen to a positive podcast, do something that puts your mind, like you say, towards those good things that are still around us, but that the media does not want to show us right yeah. now. So. Well, no, that's it. I mean, the idea that there isn't an agenda, there isn't an agenda behind some of the stuff that we're consuming, you know, we're not going to go conspiracy theory right now, but you know, it's really <laughs> we <important. could. laughs> we're not going to, but it's, it's really important that, you know, people are aware of the fact that quite a lot of what is being pushed upon us is an echo chamber of, you know, negativity. So my team, my doctors, my amazing people, they will make recommendations to people that are social as well as physical. You know, if we've got people that are speaking to our, our team who are down and happy to press, some of those decisions and those lifestyle decisions that we'll help them make are chop out news, try to shield yourself from some of the things that are going to affect you genetically as well, like by bringing you down. I think it's all wrapped up now. It's lifestyle and it's life support that people need, uh, especially at the moment when things are a bit gloomy. I totally agree. I totally agree. Before I go on to the next thing, I'd, I'd love to know how people can get this epigenetics done, say, if they wanted to, they were listening to this and they were like, oh, I'd love to get that done. Thank you for asking. Uh, gratuitous plug coming up. <laughs> uh, we, uh, so it's rolling out. We're rolling it out in February on valorhealth.com valorhealth.com already does appointments and, and lifestyle MOTs and, and all the stuff that you might want from our team of clinicians 
and there will be options to buy the test and download the app and get those wonderful pieces of insight into your health and well-being through that. So that will be be launching in February. That's exciting. I'm definitely going to use that. I can't wait. I'm very excited about it as well because it, it it is it's like the end of a long journey for quite a lot a lot of us who were who thought we could do something like this but didn't know how. So fingers crossed. That's so really exciting. Amazing. So speaking of journeys, I always ask people um, this question on the podcast and I find it interesting because people's answers are always totally different. But in terms of so spirituality as a part of our healthcare, and obviously I believe in like spiritual care and mental care and emotional care, what does spirituality personally mean to you? That's a big question because you're right, it means something to everybody else. I think for me, spirituality has really started to become it's about my decision making and my conscious decision making and i'm fully aware now more consciously aware than i've ever been that every decision i make has a consequence and that there's a positive and a negative to everything that i do and i think i'm just more aware now i'm spiritually more aware of myself and also the impact that i have on other people i'm not perfect i make terrible decisions and it affects other people but i think i'm just slower and more contemplative than I've ever been, the proverbial midlife crisis, probably. But, the, <laughs> but, the, but you know, I think spirituality for me is really about my decision making and and what effect that has on other people, and just trying to make positive choices. That's just my interpretation of, of how I. I do love stuff. that. I love that. I've never heard that one. It's, it's such a it's such a true point because it also comes back to that whole part of spirituality and believing that we are all connected in some way so yeah. our choices affect everyone whether we want them to or not and it's uh, I love that that's really interesting just interestingly one of the questions that you asked me earlier about sort of men and men's mental health uh, and things like that it's almost related to that is I think men have a real problem articulating things because the language is quite fluffy and woolly and I think one of the things that, you know, I'm, I'm becoming more aware of is the narrative around health and well-being and spirituality and mental health and all that kind of stuff needs to be a bit better and more encompassing for everybody. So even kind of trying to articulate what spirituality means is a really complicated question for a dude, like for a man, like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you answered so it amazingly though. <laughs> I, but I've spent a long time thinking about it, but I think, you know, it is a great question because it does make people think. I just hope that the barriers to these kind of conversations can start to come down for all groups in society. I totally agree. So what is something, any sort of phrase, I read, read a beautiful phrase on your website, actually, that you said, you say, I will repeat now if I can find it, but it was, it was something around, yeah, that over the years you've come to realize that this world is just a place for us to learn and that we need each other more than we want to admit. And I thought that was such a lovely expression and so true that we are all essentially in the school of life and that we all need to admit that we, you know, need each other and uh, that will actually get us a lot further. So is that the sort of mantra that you live by? Yeah. Is that something that keeps you inspired and going? Definitely. I feel really blessed. I've had some incredible people in my life that have, you know, inspired and shaped me and people less fortunate than me. They've reminded me about how fortunate I am and, you know, it's all out there. It's all documented. There's TED Talks and, and all sorts of stuff, you know, it's all there. And I, actually, I think what's happened in the last year, which is a huge positive from the pandemic, is that it's leveled everybody. We're all in the same situation. It's the first mm -hmm. time since in my living memory where, you know, what divides us actually has 
very little meaning when what's pulling us all together is a common thing, right? A disease. And I do think there's more that binds us all together than divides us. And I think it's really important that we do that. I put it in my book and it was kind of, it was slapped across the back cover and it was a phrase that uh, I just live by now, which is don't do things better, do better things. And, you know, this idea that we could keep doing the same thing over and over again, or we could just do better things is, is another phrase that I, I live and will probably die by. And I think, you know, again, it's a great example in the last year that people have started to come together and this thing has bound us all up. And we have realized that actually we are all the same when you peel it all away. Definitely. I'm no better than anybody. We're all, we're all on a level. I love that about doing better things. I think it's it's so true, and it's it actually reminds me of um, oh, that quote from that amazing author who was a great woman. What's her name? Maya Angelou, who I loved, and she used to say, "When you know better, you do better." And I think yeah. it's it's that whole thing of actually realizing when we do know better and then acting on exactly. it. Exactly, exactly, and just being brave enough to say that doesn't work we can do better is very, very brave. Not to constantly apologize and feel guilty, but basically go, this is cool. We can, we can do better than this. Like we can make this better. We can change the conversation around well-being. So men find it approachable. We can abolish terrible misogynies of the past. Like they don't need to define our future, but we just have to be brave enough to acknowledge that things are, are quite often wrong and, and use that as a positive energy to try and do things better. I love it. I think it's a great way of living. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Pete. It's been so wonderful talking to you today about all these things. And I'll put your website in the show notes and Valor Healthcare and everything so people can know where to find you. Where, where can they find you on social media as well? Not really doing social media anymore. I'm sort of, I can't do what I do and say what I say and, and be <laughs> all over it. So you can hunt me down. I'm up there, but... Um, you know, your website's better. I, I, I mean, I'm so busy with Valor that we're, I don't know. Um, yeah, I feel weird about being online. I woke up a couple of years ago and there were like tens of thousands of people following me on Twitter. And I was like, that's just daft. That's so silly. I don't understand how that happened. <laughs> um, probably all bots. There you go. I'm, I'm out there somewhere. People can hunt for me. Nonlinear. Go and find me. Go nonlinear. So, yeah, that's true. Go, we won't give you the information. <laughs> Go and find it. Like, where's Wally? Go on. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alice, and take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with the wonderful Pete. I think he has such an amazing relatability to all his knowledge, and I really enjoyed this conversation. If you did too, then please spread the word and let people know because the amazing guests I have on this podcast are really, truly some of the wisest, kindest and most knowledgeable people in the world. And the more people that can hear their incredible wisdom, the better. Let me know what you think of this episode. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on social media. I'm on Instagram at lawali underscore life and on LinkedIn and Alice Law Stress Management. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day and I will see you next time with the incredible Danielle Page.